Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm the director of the centre but I make my most of my living as an author and today I'm joined by Jacob Renneker who has come back for a third visit so we can discuss the films of Peter Jackson's version of Lord of the Rings. And if it's number three, where have we reached, Jacob? A Return of the King. Oh, yeah. Well, you see, he's obviously an expert because he gets gets the question. I get the third one. It took me a second. I was like, let me just one, two. Okay, yes, The Return of the King. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're doing in these um, podcasts is looking back with the perspective of the 20 years on, Um, We're thinking particularly about the creative choices because we're about the writing, really, of these and the filmmaking. So we're thinking about where the room is to do a different adaptation, if anyone's going to take it on in the next decade or so. But also what actually happened back um, 20 years ago, the choices, the casting, the perfect moments and so on. So first of all, Jacob, this is a bit of a softball. Um, for you where does this come in your lineup of the films yeah yeah it's and yeah we mentioned this before that the first it's hard with between the first and the last in an stomach that wraps up so uh yes i'm i'll say i'll say first because but only barely edging out fellowship ah Okay. Right now, at, at this at this moment, I will say just right now, and and <laughs> reserving the the uh, the ability to change that in five minutes from now. Okay. So for me, it's my second favorite, but it has the majority of my favorite moments. So that may seem a bit counterintuitive, but there are also some bits I don't like in it. So right, you yeah. know, it sort of goes in the middle. It's the seesaw point in the middle. So first question for you is. What would you say um, about the overall choices that they made in this? Things like how the new culture of Gondor was uh, realized, and those long stretches in Mordor—the big, the big things about the film. Yeah, those were good. I mean, vis- of course, visually with Gondor, the yeah, the set, uh, you know, was 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 incredible. Um, and I thought, yeah, those are the costuming as well, right? That the really really seemed like a a unified uh, 
kingdom right there. So I, yeah, so I appreciate, I appreciated that. Um, and that kind of, and the, the whiteness, right. Of, of all of that and the shininess of the plate armor. Now, whether or not plate armor was something that Tolkien imagined is, uh, for Gondor, uh, might be a bit of a debate, but at least, uh, there was that, you know, just like a shininess, brightness, contrasting, you know, your scenes of Mordor with, with dark, you know, darker red, uh, redder palette uh, there. So yeah, so I thought it was a good contrast, but even though you have Gondor, it's still not perfectly white and shiny, right? It's this seems like it's decaying, right? Especially with the, the, the image of the, the tree there in that courtyard, you kind of this white, pristine, uh, almost sterilized courtyard um but it's it's kind of falling apart so i thought they did a good job of showing contrasting the you know a light and dark but even with the light it wasn't an you know kind of unsullied light it was you know there are cracks and fissures showing that this is a kingdom that's clearly in decline but juxtaposed to to mordor uh makes it i think seem brighter by contrast but still that you see bits of that mordor you know the kind of corruption that are there even in the kingdom. Yeah, it's very much a, a bone white, isn't it? Yeah, it, right, it's, right. It's the black and white um, aesthetic to the, the Great Hall, which sets the tone. Um, and I think that it reminds me very much of the abbeys and the architecture mm -hmm. of Northern France, even though it's a sort of Mediterranean um, feel, I believe that they were trying to create, particularly places like Mont Saint-Michel, um, which is clearly an inspiration for the way that Minas Tirith sort of rises up. I think that thinking back, I didn't think this at the time, but it's something I thought since. One of the things which I feel somebody could do if they're going, they're trying to find a room for well, how do I make this different, is that Minas Tirith stops very abruptly at the wall. Whereas in the book, there's a, a reference to the deep, uh, not deeping wall, uh, but a wall around the field, plus evidence of farming and that kind of thing. And if you think of something equivalent in real human history, like the field of Waterloo, some of the skirmishes took place in farmsteads and places like that. So you could actually make it feel more real by actually suggesting a city that is connected to something other than a big grassy plain. Uh, so that's the one thing which didn't bother me at the time, and I know that it's much simpler to put CGI on a landscape, which is just basically grass. But I did think that there's an element there where it doesn't feel, it feels like a fantasy place rather than a real place as a result. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that for me, in going back to Two Towers for a moment, I think some of the most uh, effective uh, moments were just t tiny moments where uh, you have uh, at um, right where we got to Rohan, uh, and you see villagers that are being terrorized, right? And yeah. so you see these children being placed on a horse by a weeping mother. So it's those, you know, the kind of every person uh, who is what what is it like for you know quote normal people to live in this world, whereas usually we're having this heightened sense of characters. You know, it's it's your Aragorns, it's your Gimli's, your Legolas's, you know, uh, Hobbits are kind of thrown in there, but still they're kind of held higher as kind of larger than life characters. But then to see, you know, dirty weeping mothers who are trying to save their, their children, for me, that was, I think, deepened the impact of 
the nature of the threat and the 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 evil that is actually happening here. And so right, you're right with Gondor. If it's just they're all kind of inside of this fortress already, you don't get as much of a sense. So I, I didn't connect with the people that lived in um, uh, in Gondor. I, I you know I I, yeah, I, I'm I sure wasn't. That, yeah, I'm sure that's a time thing. Because there's wonderful right. <laughs> material in the book, which let's right. imagine someone's doing a mini series as opposed to a film. Um, there's the the father and son that Pippin meets, Beragond, and um, right, his, right. yeah, um, and so you see the war from the perspective of an ordinary soldier who has an important role to play in saving Faramir. And his son, who has an important, or a little role, but a little important role to help carry messages and uh, in the end help save Mary by carrying a message. But it humanizes the war. And also Pippin goes with the son to see the arrival of the armies and you get a sense of it being just more than, you know, Denethor and, and Faramir. I mean, there's a bigger society. It makes Gondor and its surrounding land seem bigger. So... Again, this is only something you would do if you had the luxury of a bigger palette rather than a, a right. film. Where you've got to get people in and out. It's a massive amount of story to tell. But there does seem to me to be some really exciting material that's not covered, uh, which could could go in the miniseries. There we go. Right. If there is such a thing in our lifetimes. Um, so that's Gondor. What about the way Mordor is handled because that I think is a real challenge because it's meant to be hard and it's meant to be that un that just relentless suffering but putting that into a film of course means that you don't want your audience to suffer um <laughs> boredom or just the, the sameness I think it's I would imagine it's like probably the most difficult thing to do so what did you think of the Mordor parts yeah, I thought they did a good job of intercutting, uh, you know, the two bad struggles that are happening. So I thought that that yeah, was 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 a good use of uh, yeah of, of intercuts to keep the audience from getting bogged down in in that oppressiveness of Mordor. Because really, that's, that's I think the, the the sense that I got this time when I was watching it was yeah a sense of of you know kind of a suffocation or oppressiveness because you can almost. The, the air is hot, it seems like, right? And so you're almost drowning in air uh, and the weight of what Frodo's carrying. And yeah, to, so if if you're, so in one way, if, if you would have just focused on the Mordor portion for longer portions, and yeah, right, I, could, I can see people that becoming a bit tedious, but I thought the way that they were kind of flashing back and forth between the two events was was good, as well as, you know, thematically as it's following some of the those themes of struggles, leadership, and then the, it, by contrast as well, right, with Aragorn as you know king and leading, mustering this giant army with Sam and 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 Frodo. So visually going back and forth between uh, the scope and scale, because as you know, the, on, the, on the one hand, you have this your know, massive kind of traditionally epic battle feel, uh, where the the stakes are actually lower than the smaller scale battle that's where the stakes are at their highest or almost you know cosmic <laughs> in scope and so seeing both of those uh kind of going back and forth juggling those the the dissonance between the yeah the the 
the weight of the struggle and the degree of the the stakes for both of those was was something that was more pronounced in my most recent rewatch. Yeah, I think that one of the things I appreciate um, is the quite daring, but I think very good use of little touches of humor in the Hobbit story. I'm mm -hmm. thinking of the moment when Sam is going up the stairs to save Frodo from the tower. Um, and he's making this sort of er noise, which echoes, and they're expecting this enormous warrior to approach, and then it's just the, the little hobbit. And he, he strikes a blow for his gaffer. I mean, those moments of hero heroic behavior, but with this with the lovely sort of smile of the Shire value, I think a really good way of doing it. There's another moment, um, when they get caught up in they're mistaken for orcs and they get caught up in the the march and they're trying to escape from the column that's going to the battlefront because they that's the wrong way and and frodo's sort of saying hit me you know hit me and he's sort of is the comedy of them uh, having this moment where they're using their hobbit intelligence to escape from it and it's a, i think very beautifully done i think Granted, it's difficult material because of its darkness and its, in fact, it's just two characters and then, you know, obviously Gollum at the end. But I think that they did really well on that. So, you know, hats off to the script writers and the film people for actually doing that bit. What's interesting comparing it to the book is there are some little moments where they get pursued by named orcs in, mm -hmm. in the book which I always enjoy reading because they also give you a moment when um, Frodo and Sam overhear what might be going on outside, which I think is a very good reading experience, but I can see why you may not bother with those as a, uh, you don't want to string it out too much. It's hard enough right. getting to the mountain. Um, I can see the decisions that were taken there. Okay. So Jacob, what are your perfect moments in the film where you just thought, yep, this is, everything it could have been <laughs> uh there's you know there's yeah there's 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 a, a few of those uh, there's one you know visually uh when frodo sam and Gollum kind of towards the beginning of the film when they've left osgiliath and they're passing the statue of the you know defaced king uh uh, and you know the the head of the king is laying on the side there, and it's been replaced with some you know iron bound rock that's just kind of teetering there. Um, that that was a great depiction of you know kind of what's happening here, the combination that we saw with um, uh, with Saruman with this you know industry metal right kind of artificial uh, kind of usurping the natural you know more grand uh nature of of of, of that world um and you, you see that uh that statue kind of looks horrific and then you see the head there on the ground but then uh sam points attention to that right and says uh you know look the king has his crown once more right because that might be this, frodo i think uh, it might be frodo isn't it is it frodo says i I thought that Sam is, is mentioning that to Frodo because there's that ray of light that strikes the it and and Frodo's kind of I think sullen as he is for most of the film from <laughs> that point. This I could I could the, I could be wrong. This might be the tiebreaker question between us, mightn't it? You know, in our yeah, right. who says it? <laughs> anyway, one of them says he's crowned again. One of them says yeah, 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 right, right. So so I think just that that beautiful moment of hope and what's you know that that you're you're anticipating this kind of like long slog, but then you have that moment 
uh and it just yeah it was visually just it this time around just kind of struck me as just kind of a a, a little note of of hope to keep you going <laughs> knowing where they're going and what's happening there so that was that was one of mine there's yeah a couple other ones but i'd love to hear one of yours okay so i have this i said this is one of my favorite um film for best moments in there is definitely the charge of the Rahirim. Just, I mean, the excitement. I can remember my children when they were younger. Well, even now, I'm sure they get excited. Just waiting for the Rahirim to appear on the horizon. And then that fantastic sp speech, which is from Tolkien by Bernard Hill, uh, Theoden. Um, it's just such a wonderful moment of sort of raises the spirits. And I think... It's that time when film really works. You're caught in it and you are right. You feel like you're riding down the hill with them because the camera work is on a, a track and it's going really quickly and you feel like you're moving with them. I think that is one of my favorite sequences. That's a great, yeah, that, that one's great. And there's, there's a couple of the, the other kind of army related one of, you know, Aragorn's speech to the soldiers of the Black Gate is another one that always <laughs> kind of, Oh Lips. no, I hate that. Was that one? I, that's that, one of the you hated. That's oh. my fail. I mean, talk about you. You're trying to get people to go on basically a sort of nightmare, probably dying mission, and you say, "Oh, you know, there will be a day of shattered spears, and you're all going to be horribly killed." And everyone's thinking, <laughs> "We're going to be horribly killed." Then he says, "Not that day." And I, I just, I really dislike that. We, we all howl in my family when that comes on. When that happens, oh. So for me, that that is in the uh uh, you should have stuck closer to Tolkien. <laughs> but you like it. I mean, this is where you see we are trying. The point of having a discussion is, is a discussion, right? Yeah. You like that, do you? Right. It works for you. I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's it's a yeah, it's it's a, it's a failed you know a failed mission. It's a su a suicide mission, and just finding some some sort of hope, right? That uh, the day that you're holding right by all the hold dear uh that you're standing for, for, for something. How do you keep somebody's hopes up in the face of the hopeless? I think, yeah, I, I, I like it. I'm, but I'm also easily persuaded by rousing political speeches. Uh, so <laughs> that could, that could, that could be part of it. Then the, then his, you know, his, and then you know, there's that pot, you know, there's after his speech, but then when, when Aragorn is saying, you know, for Frodo and charging into battle, you know, the first oh, I like that. on the field like to that. go into that. So I see that kind of as a continuation in, in my mind that exists. There's that speech. And then, because then it cuts away from that, but then uh, I see that mentally as that speech. And then basically he is then charging into battle as kind of the climax of that. Um, but that's how my imagination works. So Okay. I got another good, another favorite bit, which is um, the lighting of the beacons. And this is partly to do with the fantastic Coward Shaw score that mm. underpins it and again this particular film I always associate very much with communal watching in a family context with us all being really excited and involved unlike the other it's just this film I think has that quality to it and there is a spot where the light is going to light up on the horizon um, as the camera goes across this fantastic New Zealand middle earth landscape and you try and think uh you know where's some poor guy up the top of a mountain with his torch going to be next 
but it's just got a feeling of the connect it connects the two locations which is a very simple device but it has um that majesty to it and sense of the vastness of the world i just love that bit and i love that piece of music it's probably might be my, one of my favorite themes from the whole of the the trilogy yeah, and that's something that you can only do yeah, in film, right? Yeah. That is difficult yeah. to capture that same scope with the sound, right? So the visuals, the sweeping visuals accompanied by that swelling score is something, yeah, that that I think they leverage really well in this film adaptation to give you a sense of the grandeur uh, and, the, and, and, and the importance of that particular moment. So yeah, agreed, agreed. I, I mean, I can go on. Another I can go. I'll, I'll just do one. Yeah, yeah with, do with one the, there's, there's still yeah. So there's you know several Sam Sam and Frodo moments, right? Yeah, that, are, yeah. that are that are just that are just incredible. Um, but one uh, that that I think visually and with the uh, with the the scoring that I think worked really well is um, when you know so Sam and Frodo are just by themselves at this point, kind of the final stretch there. And they're clawing their way up Mount Doom. They're you know, at that point, Frodo and Sam. You know, Sam's kind of laying there, and Frodo kind of gets up, and he's clawing himself up, and then he collapses, and Sam's you know coming up. But as as Frodo's climbing up, that kind of by himself now, you hear the Shire pipes that start going in this you know bleak landscape as he's you know giving this last ounces of energy, and just that sound of the Shire pipes is you know so incongruous with these you know destructive oppressive dark suffocating surroundings and then sam's line in right when he comes in the you know i can't carry it for you but i can carry you but then you come with that into the west kind of theme that comes swelling up behind him uh during that moment so it's just the the use of yeah the the, the score there was deeply moving i think really adds to that an already powerful moment uh that's that was there right from 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 the books but just adding that that sound um and the kind of again linking and what they're doing the two of them here in this desolate landscape from this verdant peaceful landscape of the shire linking that with those pipes is just really really effective i felt for for me at least I mean, we could just go on raving about the good moments because there are plenty of them. And I think that almost every character has a really good moment. I'm yeah. thinking of Pippin singing. Mm. So I don't like the rather overplaying the John Noble Denethor eating of the blood coming out of his mouth. That's a kind of, yeah, we get it. He's eating, but yeah. Um, but the sweetness of the song with the montage of the, uh, the, the cavalry riding towards a hopeless, impossible aim of trying to retake Osgiliath. Um, I think that's that's very good. And Merry, of course, has his his moments in the battle, uh, helping out Erwin, who also has her best moments. So you know, there's some fantastic. Really, I think they actually have done those moments really well. The whole Pelennor fields aspect and the and the way that the narrative of the battle is told because battles are confusing and a lot of it in the book of course is done as a song um by the bards of Ro rohan afterwards so there's a they haven't uh, you know in a sense the they've tidied it all up into a narrative and i think peter jackson does have a very good skill of making it so we can follow 
from character to character in a battle so you don't lose where you are and I, that that's incredibly difficult to do i'm sure um you know i think that's whereas in the hobbit if i can just sort of step out of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> i found that the battle of the five armies it just went on far, far too long i thought some of the it was overblown there were too many battlefields it, it just kind of went all over the place this one it seemed to be serve a narrative purpose all the time rather than mm-hmm. here's another cool trick I can do with a chariot. So, right. uh, and the Oliphants are pretty good. Well, I think we mentioned last time that the Legolas um, downing the Oliphant was a good sequence because it was earned by the role he was playing in the battle rather than, you know. Right, right. So let's think about some of the differences between the book and the film. Bearing in mind, we are acknowledging you can't do everything. Um, but it does start, there's two, well, multiple starts and multiple ends, which I think mm. we should talk about. Of the starts, it, uh, I think the very first start is with um, Smeagol and Deagle fishing from a boat, which is a surprising start, which I think is quite a good way of surprising the audience. I do remember finding the violence of actually quite an extended scene of somebody throttling somebody else quite difficult particularly mm. watching it with a family mm. it, is, it was one of the scenes i would I, <laughs> here comes the mum i would skip that and also skip shelob just because of the nightmare factor uh, right. for the kids shelob i think is earned the smeagol and eagle thing because it's man on or hobbit on hobbit um, does seem to be away from the more fantasy cartoon violence. So I, yeah, it, it's problematic. I can see why you want it, but I, it's, I don't enjoy yeah. that. I don't enjoy that scene. There you go. Yes. Yeah. I, I agreed. Yeah, it is. It is difficult to watch. And I do. So, and this is something I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about at length uh, a little bit later, but showing violence in the shire specific you know in in a shire related you know landscape something showing the violence that can take place there because of the ring or as a result of the ring that evil can work its way into the most pastoral of of settings because of this object of power so i i so I, I can see again, like you said, like I can see why they put it in mm. there, but it is, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. That it is kind of a departure from like you know, human elf dwarf hobbit on orc uh, violence or cave troll or right. Uh, yeah. Usually you're not dealing with humans. The, the only time you really get human on human is a little bit into, in, in two towers where you see characters with warm tongue and, um some of what he's doing there but and denethor is you know kind of a human on human villainous character in the films this is what you're seeing visually but you're right it is (laughs) it is a departure uh it is unexpected uh and difficult yeah i I probably wouldn't for my thinking of my little one i won't yeah (laughs) have him watching that anytime soon though isn't it i I, (laughs) all mine are grown up now but at the time when they were sort of older children um you, you know you're sort of watching it with the eyes of what do I want them to see um, yeah uh that that was an element which I think it's not so much the, the 
it's the fact how long it goes on for and how mm. graphic it is that he he's throttling yeah. this person. Uh, so the second um, sort of departure is from the extended cut, which where which is where Saruman is reinstated, the death of Saruman, and there's um, a speech where he's at the top of Orthanc and then falls down and gets spiked on a sort of wheel thing. Um, what do you think of that scene? If yeah, if if you're not if you're not showing the scouring of the Shire and you have to come up with you already decided that you're not doing that for the story that you want to tell, um, then I'm trying to think of what other ways you can dispose of get an end for the character of Saruman. I, I mean, it's so in in some sense you still have you know, worm tongue as the disposer uh, in in one way. Um, but then what what you lose in offing Saruman there is uh, more of the pity of of Gandalf, which in in his speech, uh, in Saruman's speech at the top of the tower, he, you know, derides Gandalf. He says, you know, I don't need your pity, right? Um, uh, or mercy. Uh, and you really see that in the book version when you know they just leave and let you know they they, they let Saruman off and give him a chance to still do something right to give ha having mercy upon him and then leaving it up to him on how he decides to change or not. Um, so you, you do you do miss that, and so that that that's a moment something that I appreciated from the book that you don't get as much by just watching saruman it is it is a, a spectacle <laughs> right and him being impaled uh specifically on you know his his own machinery like yes yeah. i understand you know the the kind of irony of that um and it is vis visually <laughs> really uh arresting um and i think i understand that it's it's a kind of a visual callback to uh another one of uh, christopher lee's roles as dracula uh, in a film where he was <laughs> impaled uh, in in that film, so kind of a, a a visual nod to another piece of cinema. Yeah, so it was the theatrical cut didn't have this, and so it was a bit right. random that um, Pippin just picked up the Palantir and uh, that which is a seeing stone in order to set that up. Um, so it's better with it in, but and also it was it felt wrong not to have a, a goodbye scene for. Christopher Lee, didn't it? But right. this is definitely one of those spaces where I think there's room for improvement, given mm -hmm. a bit more canvas, a bit more scope, that actually what the Saruman survival to end up causing trouble in the Shire does is it gives a real sense of how evil just doesn't go away Mm -hmm. when you throw a ring in a fire you know the damage remains but also it gives Frodo his moment of fullest maturity when even after there's an attack on him he in the right at the door of Bag End he says you were great once and that's his moment of greatness is when he says that and um, I'm, I'm sure we're not spoiling the plot for anybody. Uh, Grima then attacks him, and then the hobbits shoot Grima. So it kind of wraps it up. And I would really enjoy seeing that moment 
because whilst Frodo's been rising up into being a, a sort of bigger soul, Saruman's been diminishing, and I think that gives mm. that moment. Because because Saruman is a Valar, he's he's more than just a wizard. He's right, almost right. He was a sort of archangelly messenger of the right. gods kind of person. Yeah, and that's one of the themes I think that the the film does well with the character of Gandalf. Right, just going back to the you know the background information with a Valar with a you know or with Maya right? with with Gandalf being a Maya right that Sorry, uh, yes and correction let me correct that right yes yeah yeah I you, meant, to, I, meant to go, <laughs> I meant to say Maya the Valar yeah. are like the gods the Maya right. are like the next next rung down. So nevertheless impressive. Don't, don't write into correct <laughs> the I'm just having a senior yes. moment. <laughs> but the arch right, yes, yes. But the archangel moment, yeah. So with Gandalf, right, and, and in right and in the Silmarillion, you have uh right Olorin, who's you know, um uh, who becomes who's who's Gandalf, right, embodied. Uh, that he it mentions in Silmarillion that he has kind of an it suggested that he has an apprenticeship under Niena, who's the goddess of weeping and wisdom and so and pity. And so that's where it seems that Gandalf picks up this idea of pity from as this kind of cardinal virtue. And then I think Ian McKellen does a really good job of depicting this uh, pitiful in the positive sense, right? Somebody who is full of, of, of pity for others and where he has that, that the, in his eyes and his demeanor, I think he adds to, he really highlights that in the character mm -hmm. of Gandalf that's latent in the character of Gandalf that, that, that's actually you know pervasive there. You actually see that visualized. And then Frodo, right, picks up that idea when he spares Gollum's life later. But then you see that, I think, fully realized with Saruman, where then instead of having a, you know, a Maya kind of teaching him about pity, this hobbit, you then have a hobbit who's displaying this, you know, fully realized sense of pity to this, you know, otherworldly superhuman uh, being who was at, you know, at the height of of its power earlier. So I, I so I, I really like that, like you were saying, you know, giving Frodo this moment, showing his full moral development. So you see him as a, you know, just like courageous development, right? If you're looking at that as a character aspect, that's what the films depict well. But in terms of his moral development, I think you do get a fuller realization of that in the that scene that you're mentioning in the scouring of the Shire. Yeah, this isn't a a criticism of Peter Jackson choosing not to do that because I think he just had too much material. But I, I'm just yeah, really pointing out where I think the room is to do something different yeah, and interesting. Something more. Yeah. That's right. the point here. So um that's that does actually take us to the problem of the endings of the film. Mm -hmm. And this is why it doesn't make it as my favorite of them because i remember watching it in the cinema and we have uh, a sort of whiteout when frodo is uh, sort of passing out on the the ashy slopes he wakes up and is in a bed and there's quite a long scene of slow motion people coming in and then there's um a coronation and then there's a flying up the map and you're thinking, is it the end? Is it the end? And then there's um, riding into the Shire. Then there's down the pub in the Shire with um, the sense of Sam going off to um, speak to Rosie Cotton. Then there's Frodo writing in a book. This is all the end. Frodo writing in a book and suffering. He's ill. And then there's the ride to um, meet Bilbo, who's going to the shores as well to catch the boat 
And then there is the long scene of farewells on the shores. Now, each of those scenes has something good in it and something I wouldn't want to lose. But the problem is, is I think there's another blackout scene as well, um, another moment where you think, oh, this is the credits are going to roll. Right. It doesn't leave. You keep saying, is it now, is it now? And I remember thinking in the mm -hmm. cinema, this is, and I'm a passionate fan of, you know, the whole thing. I remember thinking this is going on too long. That it's just not it's just not working. Where do you think? What would you agree? And what would you have done? Yeah, that's a good question. De definitely, I think visually they do. You're know, using the conventions of of film with that, especially like a fade to black. That's usually. <laughs> denotes the end, uh, kind of a, a hard, a hard stop on something. Uh, so, so using that, yeah, certainly I think interrupts the sense of flow that could that could be there in some of those scenes. So it re it really is difficult because you want to have all of these different moments, and so I think it's an attempt to to have have it always, uh, have it both, not just both ways, but always right with 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 kind of having a there's almost yeah like a, a traffic jam uh, kind of uh, of of endings kind of piling up one after another in in one sense um yeah and in another sense i mean because I, I like I, I i want to live in that world i want to i want to be there and so i i, I get a sense you know after each of the endings like can there, can can i please just get one more it's like an encore you know when somebody leaves you, you like a, a musician you're the when they, I, I, I like I like the fact that there is more of it. It is, but it isn't as smooth. And I think as, as narratively as you could. And I think, yeah. So it'd be interesting if you had to try to reconfigure some of those different endings. Is there a way where, like you did with the Mordor and uh, Gondor battle struggle sequences? Is there a way that you could intercut some of those farewells that would be compelling? Um, I'm not sure because I think for, for, for endings, usually, right, you want to like linger with the character and have kind of more extended dialogue sequences. And that's harder to do with intercutting. But I want, yeah, I, it would be, it would be interesting to say like, are, is there a different way to do this? Um, yeah, I'm, if, I'm if wondering, having, flexibility. I'm wondering hearing you talk actually, if the problem isn't so much the number of endings, it's the fact that we get the music and the signals that this is ending. Mm. It's a bit like you're, you applaud a piece of classical music before the end because you've taken right. the, the final chord as being it, but actually no, there's a coda, which you didn't know, didn't know to expect. And I think actually the signaling, the filmatic signaling is a bit wrong there. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's another way of doing it. I can, I can yeah. also in this other world, I'm imagining of the mini series with much more time, you could, make a real virtue of it and have your mm -hmm. um, sense of say the message is just because you kill the baddie or break his power it doesn't mean that things are over you know that this mm -hmm. world and you could actually make that a really interesting part about that because it would give more space to breathe for some of the relationships which kind of get Mm -hmm. shunted into sort of a ra very rapid wedding bells style of um solution and actually there's some right. much more interesting reflections on that um mm -hmm. so yeah I absolutely think, I, one... the signals are wrong signals are wrong and yeah. that's a film yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yep 
Yep, absolutely. And one of the endings with with one of those that you don't really get is a moment with a pair that you've followed from the beginning, which is Legolas and Gimli, right? The development of their relationship. Yeah. You don't really get a good send off of just those two as a pair that you do have mentioned right in, in the book that they're kind of going off to uh, together for a while. And then uh, the possibility that the two of them then go into the West together, but not, not explicitly, but that it is said some, you know, some say that. Yeah. This is something that so could happen. So that in the book, Gimli and Legolas have an agreement that um, Legolas will take Gimli into Fangorn to, sh to show him the appreciation of trees. And Gimli right. takes Legolas into the caves at Helm Helm's Deep. The problem they have is that Gimli doesn't go in the caves at Helm's Deep because of the way the narrative works. Uh, air winds down there with the women and children. And you don't, even though there are beautiful caves, you don't get the chance to establish that for Gimli, this has been one of his peak moments in the journey mm -hmm. is discovering these fantastic caves. Um, right. Yeah. But also one thing, I, I, I appreciate how difficult this is. I mean, this is, <laughs> we're being very picky <laughs> yeah. here because we can just reorganize it just, you know, in our armchairs. But um, one thing that which I did think was done well in the extended edition, which was cut from the theatrical is, just a couple of moments with Erwin and Faramir establishing what they mean to each other. There's mm -hmm. a, and I think actually that's one of the ways, that's one of the good things that you could have done more with because he, Peter Jackson chooses some key moments. So they're in the houses of healing together. They have a moment when she, when they're not sure which way it's going to go. Um, mm -hmm. And they find comfort in each other. And then they're standing together at the coronation and if you're going to do a compressed version of their relationship, that's quite a good way to go. I think the problem with the Aragorn and Arwen story is they spend the entire story apart and they try really hard to bring a connection with some of the um, the scenes that foretell Arwen's future. I mean, I enjoyed watching those because it delved into material from the appendices and that was a bit of, you know... A, a geeky thrill to see that but it, I think there is a really difficult problem making us feel that that relationship you know it's just they just don't have the time together <laughs> uh, which right. is a shame it's just the way the story runs um and so perhaps yeah perhaps oh I can't suggest putting more in because that would have just made it even longer film <laughs> I think that that was one of the less successfully handled love stories because it did sort of vanish really below the yeah the weight of the other narrative right yep yeah agreed and especially with somebody as great as, as Eowyn that you spend so much time with mm. earlier you know in the previous film and then on the battlefield I think it would so yeah I, I think that she could have had a slightly better send-off Again, but again, that, that would that would have extended the runtime, which yeah, they're already we that. <laughs> running way well, too I think, far. I think, gets, I think she gets enough. It's Arwen who gets the she just comes to the wedding. Um, right, right. But you do have those scenes where she's leaving. I mean, they they I think they they decided to do well. Let's give her a little story arc so that she now is. They added the thing about her dying, um, and, and that Aragorn is also fighting for her. Um, because otherwise she'll die as if he didn't need uh, any uh, 
any more motivation. I can so they want to make the connection. I just feel it's a really difficult story to put into a film because this isn't a love well, it's not a love story. It's a it's a love story in the sense that it's a story between friends, a love story of friendships, the Sam and Frodo and the fellowship. And it just feels it's just difficult. Um yeah. So it's not Berin and Luthien, is it? Which is it's kind of no. <laughs> uh what it's you know, that would be that's the film I'd like to see made, that one. But do a proper Tolkien love story. Yeah. Right. I think that the another cut I would have made is the goodbye speech of the Grey Havens just goes on too long. And mm. also I think the coronation just goes on too long. You know, there's some yeah. just, just does. You know, in terms of yeah. building the pace towards the end rather than mm. putting on the brakes. But anyway, that's me being picky. Yeah. Okay, so um, thinking about the things that if we were, what other potential do you think there would be if you were given the job? You get the phone call, some big streaming platform wants you to do the uh, Return of the King again. I've mentioned some things I'd put in. Where would you go? Yeah. What What did you like and not like about the changes that were made to Return of the King? What would you put back? Yeah. Yeah, that's hmm. yeah. I'm the so that yeah the, the the scouring of the Shire is something that I keep going back and forth on on whether or not to to include that. But I think it, you're right that 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 sort of ending seems more better fit for a long form series, uh, you know, limited series. Um, just because there's 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 so much that you see there, like you said, one of the themes you know, that that they didn't follow is the you know the, the the long defeat, and that even when the ring is thrown into uh, right the fires of Mount Doom, that evil still is, and it's not. They haven't changed the world and renewed it, and now there's no more death and <laughs> sorrow um, uh, or evil. Um, so you get. And and I understand that you know in a film what you're doing they need those kind of stark you know you have you have your evil you know clear evil clear clear good and uh, how those those two are wrestling in the hearts of some of these individuals how they went out in in some instances um, but then in the end good wins and you can go home as an audience happy knowing that <laughs> good has been saved uh, at least in one world <laughs> that you've experienced um, but. Yeah, I, I. But with that, I, I think the the scouring of the Shire does show that the story, the you know, the, the road does go ever on in 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 a way, right? That there are more stories, um, there's more adventures to be had later, and this is like you know, Sam says that there are these great stories. You know, we're a part of a story, and we're continuing on and that these stories will continue to exist. So if there's one thing that I think that could have been done where you could maybe bring in a little bit more of the fact that it's not necessarily happily ever after, you do kind of get a sense of that in the delivery of Sam, you know, his, you know, line, you know, well, I, you know, I'm back uh, there at the end that it's kind of a bittersweet him being back. Um, but I think if you, another possible avenue is to kind of lean more into that and show you, you him even 
telling those stories, that same sort of speech that he has or moving that or having him telling that to his children about having, which is different from the book, right? They ended it in a book appropriate uh, place there with Sam saying, I'm back. Um, but if you wanted to continue some of those themes of each person being part of a narrative, a larger narrative, and then these kind of continually happening and good and evil continual struggle that I, I, I think there's, there's a way that maybe you could include a bit more of that thematically and that we're all continuing, even the audience included is part of this ongoing struggle um, that looking back on it, other people might say, you know, you had a heroic life when in the moment as you're struggling with this, you might not feel that way yourself. I don't, I think that I wouldn't have chose, I wouldn't have changed the end. I definitely would have used that as my last line. The thing I would change about Sam though is the right at the beginning of the film where Frodo and Sam fall out. I know they did this for narrative purpose to get Frodo on his own in Shelob's lair, but actually I think it works really well in the book where the two of them are so terrified um, and doing it together. I, I think that really works, that passage. So yeah. I'd like to see a version where they don't fall out on the stairs. Mm. This is where there's a bit of a character wrenching going on. Um, we were talking about how Faramir in the Two Towers has a sort of pushing into a more violent version of himself. He's back at, <laughs> interestingly, in this film, he's back as the Faramir from the book uh, right. after that little foray on the dark side. Um, but in... This film is set up that Frodo is already so sort of impressed by the ring that he distrusts Sam. And that doesn't happen in the book. And I think that breaking of the trust then actually takes away the power of him right at the end breaking away from doing what Sam wants him to do. I would have hmm. I would have held that moment till then, the right on the, the crack of doom, literally that even Sam can't get through to him. And so it's kind of done a bit early. Um, mm -hmm. So I would, that's what a thing that I would not, would suggest that it's possible to redo and have a really good, powerful, scary, you know, we've seen the equivalent of the horror films of two people going through the haunted house. If you're both equally scared, it's equally terrifying. You don't need to be on your own. Um, yeah, so that's what I, I think I would change that because... I think that narratively it works better for Frodo to have his moment of breaking right at the end. Right. Yeah. And that's something, yeah, with, with the, yeah, we mentioned these kind of triads that are set up, right. With Gollum, Sam and Frodo and, you know, Denethor, Faramir and, and Boromir and Aragorn, Arwen and Eowyn as these kind of triad of triads of these dynamics between those different characters that Frodo, Sam and Gollum, that to, to make them more, to make it more of an equal triangle, uh, having Frodo kind of split between Gollum and Sam. And so introducing more tension between the characters dramatically. I can see why they did that for that purpose, but it, you, but you, in, in making that choice, it's done at the expense of this deep, like you said, trusting um, relationship that that has developed between Frodo and Sam between all I've done. So you do lose something there. It's, it's done at the expense of that relationship and the beauty of that relationship. And that's seeing that, I, I agree that maybe seeing that point, that split done at the very end, when you think 
that's the one thing that Frodo has <laughs> to save him is Sam uh, and Sam, you know, him and his relationship with Sam. It would be, uh, yeah, I think more more of a gut punch, an emotional gut punch than than it is uh, as it is presently in the film. But it's just a yeah. trade up. But you get that gut punch earlier, and so it's where 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 do you want that falling out? But I, w- I would like to see the version that you suggested. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's always more to talk about. We've talked for quite a long time about a film which lasts um, three hours or something, isn't it? In the in the uncut right. version. And there is still more to say, but let's think about the achievement. So we've been we've been nitpicking. We love these films. It's not <laughs> it's not a criticism. I think it's just quite exciting to think what you could do because there is a temptation mm-hmm. to say these were such good films that we shouldn't be touched. You should leave them as they are. Nobody else need come along afterwards. But I do actually think when I've thought about it at length that if you say, well, let's take a different pace that's taken a different canvas i do think there is actually scope and plus some of the things which feel a bit cgi like like the um the the black gate where uh, the the land falls away beneath all but the good army that always feels like a video game to me that that the way it's shot and everything it doesn't feel and i'm sure these days there we've come on 20 years time you know I, i think you could probably have another go at some of the cgi as well but anyway um what do you think about the return of the king and it's the fact that it won all those oscars was it a deserved oscar win i think you've got 11 oscars do you remember <laughs> yeah like- uh, thir- just at thir- thir- yeah 11 13 it was it was an i think it was an odd some sort of odd or prime number uh that was more than 10 <laughs> uh <laughs> I can't remember exactly it might it might have been 13 but yeah i think and again yeah cuz this was they were all kind of shot concurrently um so i i I thought it was well deserved what i didn't you know you you didn't have um i believe it was uh ian mckellen um was you know nominated for fellowship um uh for an uh, academy award but not for return of the king when uh, you know i I argue he, he he should have been as well like i i i there there were a few kind of oversights i think but i i overall yeah i think it's it was a a, a marvel a miracle a miracle even of uh of 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 cinematic uh accomplishment there um so i i i think i think it was it was absolutely deserved and that wasn't just you know kind of a a a pity pity awards being given for something that had just taken so much time but just the ambition um, yeah the special effects uh, even in that I think, I think it won everything except acting awards and there is yeah. a problem i think in the academy of giving uh, in the oscars of actually giving awards for a- acting in a fantasy film it, they're very yeah recent. fantasy sci-fi yeah yeah they're, yeah, they're exactly. quite good awards to people who do things where they're changing their bodies physically but within a real world context but if you right. become a wizard suddenly you know you're you're counted yeah. out so i so i i think it i think it what it deserved the awards because i think and the awards i think were a recognition of the whole trilogy really i think that's exactly. what happened yeah. there it was kind of okay mm-hmm. this is our last chance we got to do this and i do think they completely rose to the challenge so i mean my my last comment i want to make on 
this is basically well done. These films deserved the Oscars because it was a recognition of the whole of the trilogy. And they, Peter Jackson and his team brilliantly rose to the occasion. They, as a Tolkien fan who was worried about what they would do, for me, they really achieved um, so much and they were really respectful of the material whilst making changes which they felt were necessary. I don't agree with all their choices, but I can see why they made their choices. So it's just because of debate about, you know, not everybody makes the same film. That's the whole point. Um, so I think they are definitely, they're still my favourite films, but I would, I still think there's room for more. Mm-hmm. A little bit more, as Frodo says, and that little bit more is, somebody else having another go right. i think that you know in a decade's time i'd be quite ready to watch watch it so good luck to whoever that is <laughs> right yeah exactly i would love to i would i would love to see too and sim- similar yeah I, I, I hats off them it was like i mentioned in the first podcast this was my first introduction really into the world of of tolkien and so it was i think for me, and I'm sure for a lot of others, kind of an ideal entry point into uh, a world, you know, a, a, a brilliantly imagined, painstakingly created, uh, lovingly uh, curated world uh, that uh, Professor Tolkien um, spent so much time, put so much heart into. Uh, it's I'm 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 so incredibly grateful that so many people took this so seriously, created such a uh, you know a a lived-in, convincing world that I could step into um, and fall in love with, and that led me to reading uh, reading <laughs> the books themselves, and then everything else <laughs> that the good professor uh, put his put his hand to. So it's been really enriching experience for me. So if if for for no other reason, uh, I applaud it, and it, it holds a preeminent place in my heart because it introduced me into this broader world that. Uh, uh, Professor Tolkien created. Yeah, he, uh, Tolkien had the theory that we were sub-creators. Uh, and just as my my sort of coder is, one of the things that Peter Jackson created was an environment, a story around the making of the films. So not only could you watch the films as a fan, but you also had the pleasure of doing, I think it's the best behind-the-scenes um, coverage of any film it certainly raised the bar extremely high if anyone's followed on it's because of him so that not only was it like the film journey but you also had a sense of the journey of the actors and the stagehands and the you know the people who did the the set design and made all the pro- and that in itself was an, a creation and an achievement which I think would, and the sense of New Zealand getting behind it as a sort of, you know, that whole fun part of it. So I enjoyed watching the creation of the film world around it as well. And I think that would be very, very hard to replicate uh, in future. So that might be, in a sense, its most unique um, contribution in the long run. We'll see. Yeah. So good luck well, to whoever does much. this next. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I haven't heard that anyone's um, in 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 the frame for doing it, but I would imagine it will happen. They've just announced that they're doing a uh, anime of uh, Rohan today um, at the day we're f- filming this. 
so clearly other sort of mini series type things are happening um so we'll see and of course we always uh, do a section where we decide at the end of our podcast where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place for something we've been talking about kings so the obvious place to go jacob is to decide where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place to be made king any ideas on that one um for me i think i'm going to have to go with um uh the world of fairy in jonathan strange and mr norrell by yeah. Susanna clark i think the raven so the, the raven king there uh it, incredibly mysterious character incredibly powerful you don't get to spend he only appears <laughs> i don't want to give spoilers but you don't see a lot of this raven king if you do or do not see him again i won't say for certain but uh if he, he appears and he carries a tremendous amount of weight without having to do too terribly much so if you're looking for maybe i don't know a, a retirement uh or a vacation destination to be a king where you get all of the the glory and the weight um and the kind of aura of of awe and majesty and mystery um while not having to do a whole lot then uh yes fairy in uh the realm of fairy in jonathan strange and mr norrell i think is is probably the best you could hope for yeah, some of the kingship gigs do seem a bit like hard work, don't they? I mean, let's <laughs> Aragorn works really hard and he it's mentioned that he has to go around tidying up and, you know, sort of re reuniting the kingdom. It's definitely a post-war reconstruction role that he has. Um, so maybe not so good. I think that there's some definite places not to be king like the Game of Thrones world. <laughs> no, no, not taking that gig. Possibly I would like to be a king in, um, or queen. It's got to be Narnia, really. Because partly that was the childhood thing of you get to be long live King Peter, long live Queen Susan and so on, which is a great <laughs> bit of an ego trip as a child. You can imagine yourself being king. But I'd actually probably prefer to be king in um, The Magician's Nephew, where you're the first mm. king. And it's the cabbie and his wife who get to be king and queen there. And I always thought the idea of being king and queen in a pristine world where you're setting up the state sounds quite fun. So that's where I'd like to go and be king. And there's probably very little paperwork because you haven't inherited right. anything. You know. So it's just a straightforward king gig where you right. can establish your court and everything up. So that's, that's my great. Thanks so much, Jacob. Thanks for joining, joining me. And I hope people have enjoyed our discussion. We don't expect you to agree but we'd be very interested to hear um, your views. So do write in and let us know. You can find us at the Oxford Centre for Fantasy.org. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, Plus, visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning? to your life as a fantasy writer 
or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.